She was born Barbara Apollonia Czulupek in 1897 in Poland. But by the time she was 20 years old, she became one of the most famous actresses in Europe, and by the time she was 25, she was one of the most popular actresses in American silent film. By the time she was 30, however, her career, for the most part, was over. Her name was Pola Negri, and that's this edition of the Juno Files. Hi, I'm Jim Juno, and on this edition of the Juno Files, we talk with Tony Vileko, who has a book out entitled Pola Negri, The Hollywood Years. Vileko is the author of the critically acclaimed Silent Stars Speak, and he shares his lifelong fascination with Pola Negri. Let's go to the interview. Pola Negri was the very first European actress of silent films to be invited to America. So she was a pioneer on, on several levels, but she was a phenomenal silent film star. She started her career in Germany and uh, made quite a few films, actually, and then eventually hooked up with Ernst Lubitsch, another genius director, and their best work was really done as a team. It's sad that later years they never pursued working together once they were in America because perhaps that may have certainly if not salvaged her career here, it would have certainly uh, boosted her career towards the end of the silent era. But anyway, she was a phenomenal silent star, very eccentric, very over the top, very dramatic. She lived her uh, private life very much in a public window and just uh, was a real character. It was just a long journey and a lot of fun writing about her. I gotta ask you, how, how did you get started? How did you get interested in Paula Negri? Well, I discovered her when I was a teenager. Um, I was always going to the local library and taking out opera scores or music books or film books, and I came across her biography, I'm sorry, her autobiography. And I just became, well, actually I'd seen a picture of her in a movie book prior. And I became fixated with her appearance. Um, I thought she was just uh, extremely exotic, beautiful, uh, like something I'd never encountered uh, in terms of her portraiture, her facial features. And um, so I started writing her letters. I discovered she was alive and well and living in San Antonio, Texas. And um, one of the first things I sent her, which is actually comical, um, she had a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? She was often compared to a tiger, something wild and untamable and exotic. And my mom had a small bottle, I believe it was put out by Avon, I think it was called Tigress perfume or tigress cologne and so I kind of stole this for my mother's vanity as well as one of her uh, brooches and I mailed these to Polonegri in Texas. Um, I still have the note from the secretary, actually it's in my book that I wrote, uh, thanking me but basically saying uh, Miss Negri prefers not to accept uh, uh, gifts from, from fans, but she, she didn't return them, so I, I felt good about that. 
Wow, that's, that's incredible. So, so you actually got a response at least from the secretary. Yeah. And then as I kept writing, because again, I was just fixated on her for a long time, she would occasionally send a Christmas card. Um, one was signed, uh, the other was uh, stamped with her name. And then she sent me a, uh, a postcard, a vintage postcard uh, of her and Noah Berry. But it wasn't signed, but it was just kind of neat to get things periodically in the mail. She probably figured this crazy teenager just won't leave me alone. Uh, so she did send me a few things uh, off and on when, when I was younger. Well, that's incredible. I mean, it's, that's great that she, that she interacted with her fans you know, at a time when a lot of people really didn't. So that's great. Yeah, I think she, according to her caretaker, who I had the pleasure of getting to know and contributed quite a bit to the book, she received fan mail daily. I mean, I, I gather quite a lot. I don't know how much she was able to answer, um, but she did, I'm assuming, answer most of her mail or some of her mail. Uh, but uh, clearly the great, great star right up to the end, uh, the great diva, she just thought that uh, the world still um, remembered her. And a lot of folks, of course, did. But, you know, at that point, I think she was sadly kind of forgotten, certainly by the younger generation. But uh, she's left a, a tremendous legacy and uh, as a Hollywood star and, and perhaps one of the most premier famous stars of, of the silent era during the 20s and, and preceding that when she was uh, in Europe. That's right, before before Greta Garbo, before before uh, Theda Berra, there was Pola Negri, and she was the original band. Yeah, and she, and she hated that, according to her lawyer, um, she did not like that term, vamp. Um, but in reality, that was how she was reviewed, and she really did have those qualities. And her films, you know, the kind of destroyer of men and the uh, great love interest of all, all mankind. Uh, probably Theda Berra was as big at one point, certainly, in America. But then uh, Theda Bear eventually went out of movies, and, and Negri maintained a, a presence, at least, even though she was not successful, not as successful, I should say, doing the crossover when talkies came into to view here. Why didn't she like the term Van? She felt, I think it was a stereotype of... Uh, a character she didn't want to uh, portray. One of the interviews I had read, I think I quoted some of it in the book, was she felt they'd gone down with the drain, quote, in 1929 with the stock market crash. And she was resentful of people calling her or remembering her that way because she felt she was a great, quote, dramatic actress. And she was, she was, but certainly some of her films were very campy and very vampy, so there's no getting around the fact that when you think vamp, she certainly would fit in that category along with the others, definitely. Now, she had, she had several relationships during her lifetime, and 
the most famous one, or infamous one, if you will, was with Rudolph and Valentino. And uh, he died, right? When Oh, and, and indeed. Yeah, I didn't mean to, to cut you off, Jim. Yeah, she had married a, a supposed count in uh, Europe, and then before she came to America, and that was a short-lived marriage, and then divorced, and then once she arrived here in 1922, first for her first affair, her first public affair, meaning major publicity to the point where the public and her fans were actually tired of reading about it, as, as I documented in the book, uh, was Charlie Chaplin. Um, so I think they certainly were definitely romantically involved for, for a short time. And then that was eclipsed uh, huge, big time by Valentino, who she's maintained right up till her death. That, that was the greatest uh, love of her life. And they were engaged to be married, which is always the question. Um, I've not found anyone or anything to validate that. So I think that was basically a figment of her imagination, and she did tend to be quite a fabricator. I hesitate to say liar, but a lot of the things she said were not true or were highly, highly fabricated. But, I mean, this Valentino business, I mean, the funeral itself when he passed, um, it was unprecedented for the time, uh, the amount of publicity she got and the amount of criticism she got for putting on such a show. I was going to say, in the, uh, in the documentary in 1980 by Kevin Brownlow, actor Ben Lyon went into uh, details about the uh, funeral, that she wanted to have a big white floral, floral uh, wreath on it with giant letters that said Pola. <laughs> <laughs> Which they yeah, no, that is true, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because... In, in an interview I had read in one of my early magazines here somewhere, a fan magazine from the 20s, before all this happened, Ben Lyon was kind of a, a supporter, a fan of, of Nagarese because she had cast him in, I can't remember the film, but it, it gave him a big start in, in his career. And he was very appreciative of that. But when the Valentino business broke out, and the hullabaloo with the funeral and the funeral train and the funeral in New York and the funeral in California and the pictures in the paper and the interviews. Uh, he was not the only one that just was extremely put out and I would certainly think disappointed with her shenanigans and her, her show that she put on. Yeah, I remember one headline said, Paula faints, faints, faints. Oh, oh absolutely. And that, that really that really damaged her career in the long run, didn't it? It did. It's interesting because she acknowledges in her book, which is rare because she seldom would take any accountability for anything negative, that uh, her uh, fans started to fall away, uh, kind of uh, uh, turn on her because she had not been faithful to Valentino. Because uh, shortly thereafter, uh, less than a year after, she marries a prince, this so-called prince from the uh, province of Georgia, 
and uh, Serge Mandavi, who him and his brother were kind of playboys in the 20s. One, the brother married Mae Murray, and Serge hooked up with Polo less than a year after Valentino's death. So, I mean, here's this woman that claimed she, you know, would never marry again, and he was the love of her life, and and then she said the same thing about this Serge. So the public was tired of that, and also her films were not doing real well. Towards 26, 27, definitely 28, she was not renewed. And if you read her notices in Variety, read the reviews in Variety, um, the theaters were not getting very good returns on her movie and were almost hesitant and reticent to uh, pick up her film. She was not drawing the people in. That's amazing. Yeah. And she, uh, excuse me, she did not make a, a movie for, what was it, 23 after, I think, 1940? Yeah, she had a weird thing going on. She, she was dismissed, I'm gathering. She was not renewed in 28 from Paramount. So at that point, she spent a lot of time in Europe with uh, Serge Mandavani, the uh, the prince, so-called prince. Um, they eventually, of course, divorced again. There, there was another one gone south. Um, and she did make one uh, French film, and then she made one British silent film. But this was now the era of talkies, so it remains kind of an enigma as to the great standoff. So what happens, because she was out of work and out of money, she turns to vaudeville and simultaneously also did her first American talkie in 1932. So she was actually on the vaudeville stages and her film was showing at the same time, the film was called A Woman Commands. And it was not received extremely well um she was more of a curiosity at this point and i think a lot of the reviews of course mention her basso basso voice and the very thick uh, accent which was no harm because it was a foreign kind of atmosphere in the film but yeah after 32 she did nothing until um i'm sorry 43 i believe high diddle diddle with um, andrew stone and she and, and then, but didn't Billy Wilder want her to play Norman Desmond? Yeah, and here, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, and the funny thing is, uh, here's an example of her, I guess, fabrication to be kind. She uh, had told, I believe it was Kevin Brownlow. Kevin gave me permission to reprint an interview he'd not an interview, but an encounter he'd had with her. She refused to interview, sadly, with Kevin Brownlow. But he had a discussion with her at a social event, and he had mentioned Sunset Boulevard, and um, had she been offered the, uh, the part? And she had told him, no, 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 she wasn't, and if she had been, she would have taken it. Well, I talked very briefly to Billy Wilder around 1995, uh, he called me at work one day, and I was ecstatic. Um, and I asked him specifically regarding that, you know, is it true or not true? You know, who were you considering? And did you consider Pola Negri? 
Um, I wasn't clear if he'd met her. I'm gathering he must have met her because he said yes, he had, but her accent concerned him. And uh, that was the end of that. And she did. I mean, if you look at her very small role in um, The Moon Spinners, which was her last film in 60... Yeah, I'm sorry, The Walt Disney. 64 when it came out. Um, The accent is atrocious. I mean, so to imagine her attempting to do a larger role with this kind of a handicap... Uh, it just makes me always wonder why she didn't work with someone or why she didn't somehow try to minimize that. I just don't think she wanted to work personally. I think she was um, somewhat lazy, I hate to say. But then again, she'd also met uh, Margaret West, her benefactress, in the uh, 40s, according to Negri. And they lived together for years uh, in uh, California and then ultimately in San Antonio. And West was a a millionaire. She had tons of of land and bequeathed everything just about to Pola um, upon her death in 63 also. So Negri really didn't have to work. I mean, she could pick and choose what she wanted to do, certainly towards the end. I tell you what, this has been fascinating. I really, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Tony. And are you working on any new books? I have several ideas. Uh, a couple other stars that um, I, I guess I won't mention their names yet until a little more comes to fruition. But yeah, I've got a couple irons in the fire, and also um, I'd like to do something with opera, which is another huge. Um, huge passion of mine. So there are definitely people out there that are either forgotten or perhaps I don't feel they've been remembered enough. I'd like to sort of see them get another shot in the limelight. Pola Negri, The Hollywood Years, is written by Tony Vallecco and published by CreateSpace Independent Publishing Platform. You can find it at Amazon.com and also at BN.com. Join us next time on the Juno Files when we'll be talking with Jennifer Redman, who has a new book out entitled Coralis Palmer, Southern Bell to Hollywood Hell. That's next time on the Juno Files.